I love being involved in our youth ministry in church. It's such a privilege to help run Rock Solid and Connect and Fusion and to share the message of Jesus with these young people. And next weekend we're really looking forward to going away with some of them on our youth breakout, our youth weekend away. Now we're only going up to Avoca Manor, which is the journey will take about 45 minutes or so. But still nearly every year on that journey I get asked the same question. Maybe you could even guess what that is. Are we there yet? Absolutely. It's such a stupid question, isn't it? Are we there yet? Because obviously if we were there, then we would have stopped driving and we'd all be getting out of the car. The fact that we're still driving makes that question really pointless and unnecessary. But it isn't just young people who ask strange questions. In our passage this morning, Jesus asked a question that at first reading sounds ridiculous and unnecessary. And then to make matters worse, he followed this up with a command that at a first reading seemed reckless, dangerous. And then last of all, he followed that up with a warning that just seemed impossible. But unlike us, Jesus doesn't say stupid things. He said things for a reason. So even if that reason isn't immediately obvious. So this morning we're going to have to think a bit carefully about what Jesus said here and what he was trying to teach us in this passage. So we're going to read from John chapter 5, verse 1, down to verse 15. John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to live, used to lie. The the blind, the lame, the paralysed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who had made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. 
for years, people used to use this passage to, uh, to criticise the accuracy of the Bible. That's because outside of John's Gospel, there was no evidence to back up John's claim that there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and is covered, surrounded by five covered colonnades. Nobody could find this pool in Jerusalem. So they said, obviously, that said that the Gospel of John wasn't actually written by John. But instead it was written much later by someone else who didn't have a first-hand knowledge of Jerusalem. But then at the end of the, the 19th century, archaeologists discovered the remains of this pool, complete with steps into it and uh, covered colonnades on the other side. And this is just a little reminder that when we're reading John's Gospel, we're reading not a myth, not a legend, but we're reading a historical event written by an eyewitness, somebody who saw this happen. And so this pool was real. And so was the suffering of those who lay around it. Verse 3 says, Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. And they used to lie there because they believed that this pool had healing power. Now and again, the water of this pool was disturbed and people believed that the next person into the pool would be healed. Now, John didn't give any explanation for this popular belief. However, later manuscripts said that it was an angel that came down and stirred the waters to create an opportunity for someone to be healed. In some Bibles, it's actually included in our Bible, in verse 4. I don't know if you've got a version that has a verse 4. If you have the NIV, which is the one I was reading from, this verse is actually in the footnotes, not in the main text. Because it's not part of the oldest and best manuscripts. So it seems that it was added later on by somebody else. So verse 4 is not God's word. It's an added extra. So the rise and the fall of this pool wasn't, according to the Bible, because of an angel. So possibly it was nothing more than just a natural phenomenon. And the belief in the healing power of this water was probably nothing more than a superstition. An urban legend that maybe arose because of the proximity of this pool to the temple. So it felt like a a place of healing. And so this pool that was supposed to be a place of healing was actually a place of suffering. Because it was surrounded by all of these people. Disabled and desperate people hoping to win the race into the water in the vain hope of being healed. And so I think all of that makes Jesus' question really strange. Jesus came to this place of suffering surrounded by people who were all desperately watching the water for a chance of healing, watching it get started so they could jump in first. And he went up to that man who'd been suffering some kind of disability for 38 years and he asked him 
you want to get well? Doesn't make sense, does it? Well, of course he wants to get well, you would say. He's been suffering for 38 years. And he's lying at that pool because everybody goes there for a chance to get well, to get healed. Seems like such a stupid question to ask. Maybe even an offensive question to ask. So why did Jesus ask it? Well, some people suggest that it's because some people don't want to get well. They want to hold on to their problems. Maybe because they get something out of it. Maybe it's attention or sympathy or support. Some people have suggested that, that, that people who were in this man's situation would be able to beg and would be able to get a good living from begging instead of having to work for a living. Maybe it's because some people get used to their problems. Healing changes our lives. And some people don't want that change. And so maybe Jesus didn't just barge up and heal this man. Instead he respectfully asked him if he wanted to be healed before he did anything. And certainly in the Gospels we do see Jesus respectfully asking people to accept his offer and invitation rather than just forcing himself upon them. So his offer is, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites us to allow him to work to transform our lives, rather than just barging in by force. It's a possibility, but I I have to say I'm not really convinced by that. I think there's another reason for Jesus' question here. And I think we can see that from how this man answered this question. Do you see that in verse 7? Sir, the man said, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So Jesus came up to him and said, do you want to get well? And the man did not answer, yes, of course I do. I'd love to be healed, Jesus. Please heal me now. He didn't. Instead, this man still is focused in getting himself into the pool. He complained that nobody was there to help him. That somebody always won the race to get in first. This man did not express the same faith that we saw in the official, the royal official, who came to Jesus that we read last week. Remember when he came and desperately asked Jesus to come with him to heal his son. In fact, this man didn't even know who Jesus was. When he was asked later who healed him, it says the man had no idea who it was. No idea who Jesus was. So this question of Jesus, do you want to get well, revealed where this man was in his thinking. This man was still stuck in his superstitious belief that his problem, that the answer to his problem, sorry, was in getting himself into that pool. That's what he thought would fix him. 
He was in a hopeless situation of thinking that he needed to save himself. But he was unable to do so. But Jesus has the power to do what this man could never do. So Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly, the power of Jesus healed this man. There was nothing special about this man compared to all of the other people who were lying there by the pool. This man didn't pray for healing. This man didn't earn the healing or deserve the healing. He didn't even express faith in Jesus to receive it. This was simply a free gift given to him by the Son of God. His body was made whole. His strength was returned. And as proof of it, he picked up his mat and he walked. What this man with his superstitious beliefs and his self-efforts could not accomplish for 38 years, Jesus performed in an instant. It's another amazing demonstration of the power of God to give life. This is what Jesus said later on in in this chapter, verse verse 21 of chapter 5. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Jesus has the amazing power over sickness. He can do it. He has the power to give life to whoever He's pleased to give it to. But as we saw last week, seeing the power of Jesus to heal broken bodies is not the end of this passage. Physical healing is not the destination here. Jesus would want to do something far more than just heal this man's body. So verse 9 says, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. The the last day of the week, Saturday. What we call Saturday. According to the fourth of the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel were not to work on that day. But instead they had to keep it as a holy day for the Lord. A day of rest and a day for God. And the Jewish scribes, they had taken this command and from it they would listed 39 tasks that you couldn't perform on that day. 39 different things that were against the law according to their idea. And carrying any kind of burden was one of them. So when Jesus told this man to get up, pick up your mat and walk, he was actually telling this man to go against the tradition of his religion. He was actually telling this man to break the rules. And that seemed a, initially that seems a really reckless thing to do, an unwise thing to do. Because it got this man into trouble. See, in verse 10, the Jews challenged him. It's a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. 
under pressure. This man kind of exp- ex- a, a, he explained that it was the man who healed him, who told him to do it. But then they asked, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Did you notice what they're focusing on here? What are those people, what do these Jews care about? What are they focused on? What are they concerned about? They don't really seem interested in the fact that this man's life has been transformed. After 38 years of suffering, this man is miraculously healed. And all he cared about was that he was breaking the law, their rules, by carrying a mat. Their religion cared more about its rules than about its people. It enslaved people in regulations, but it gave no power to transform their lives. This is what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus said the Pharisees tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They just put all of these rules and regulations and demands on them and then just stand back and watch them just be crushed by them. And that's what man-made religion always does. Like the superstition of the pool of Bethesda. It promises healing. It promises wholeness. And yet it's just always out of reach. Day after day after day, people search, desperately coming, hoping for a miracle. But it never comes. They end up like this man, in disappointment and despair. It's a picture of religion. A religion that's all around us today. But Jesus did not come to fit in with the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus did not come to fit into the religious hypocrisy of the Jewish faith at that time. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. As the Son of God, He claimed the authority to declare a new way to God. He didn't need to submit to their ideas. He didn't need to submit to their traditions. He could stand above all of them and declare the truth. Now that didn't mean that Jesus came to abolish the whole of the law from the Old Testament. He didn't come to rip up all of the books of the Old Testament and say, well that's a load of rubbish, you don't need it anymore. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus did not come to get rid of the Old Testament. Instead, he came to complete what the Old Testament declared. To accomplish what it had previewed. To fulfill what it had promised. And so it seems that Jesus deliberately was stirring up this controversy so that people could see the emptiness of a law-based religion. And in desperation, they could turn to him to do what they could never do for themselves. So they could see that just this tradition and law and rules was just useless and empty and just a burden on people. 
so that in desperation they would cry out to the Lord to save them. This is what Paul said was going on, what the Old Testament was for. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the Old Testament is to point us to Jesus so that we can become right with Him through faith in Him. And so healing physically was not the end result or the destination for Jesus with this man. Jesus didn't just leave this man after healing him. Now initially, verse 13, Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Presumably, this was because his purpose in being there was not to heal everybody that was lying there around the pool. Despite what some people claim, Jesus did not come to miraculously abolish all suffering on earth at this time. It's clear from this passage. His first coming is only a a foretaste of his healing power. Like Like a preview, like a trailer. It points forward to the fact that there is so much more to come. The ultimate end of sickness and suffering only happens at the second coming. It's then that it says about God that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus did not come to wipe away all suffering from our eyes in his first coming. Praise God, he will in the second coming. So Jesus had slipped away into the crowd after healing this one man. He wasn't there to heal everybody else, just this one man. But then later, he sought out this man again. Look at verse 14. Jesus, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So what was Jesus saying this time? Well, some people say that this meant that his 38 years of suffering must have been because of some personal sin. And so Jesus was warning him that if he didn't clean up his life, if he didn't sort out his problems, if he didn't stop sinning, then he would get sick again. Only worse. And of course, there are instances in the Bible where people suffered directly because of their personal sin. But this is not always the case. And I don't think it's usually the case. There is absolutely no direct correlation between our our suffering and our sin, between our sickness and our sin. In fact, Jesus challenged this idea, this wrong belief that saw sick people as people who were suffering the consequences of their personal sin. He challenged the idea that when people saw people suffering, then in some way they must have deserved it. 
So we're going to get to eventually chapter 9 in John's Gospel. Jesus and his disciples come along and they see a blind man who's been blind from birth. And they ask Jesus if this man sinned or his parents sinned to cause him to be born blind. Jesus replied, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. We can't look at our our own suffering and say, well, it must be because of something I've done. Or look at somebody else's suffering and say, well, it must be because of what they've done. That would be a wrong idea. In fact, the oldest book of the Bible, which most people think is the book of Job. And the whole point of the book of Job, from what I can see, is to challenge that idea. That if people suffer, are suffering, then it must be because they've done something wrong to deserve it. And anyway, when we see in this man here who was lying by the pool, he wasn't healed because he'd repented of his sin. Or because he'd put his faith in Jesus to, be, to receive forgiveness for his sins. This man had just expressed his despair of being healed. And Jesus miraculously intervened and healed him. So what did Jesus mean by saying, stop sinning, Or something worse may happen to you. What is that something worse? Well, if we read on in this chapter, which we'll get to in a few weeks' time, Jesus went on to speak about something far worse. Far worse than 38 years of disability. He spoke of a day when he will call everyone to come out of their graves. Those who have done good will rise to live And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. I believe this is the something worse that Jesus was warning them of. The ultimate consequences of our sin is not another illness. Instead it's to stand guilty before a holy God and be condemned to hell. So that's the reason why Jesus told them to stop sinning. Because if he didn't, he was heading to a lost eternity. But of course, if you think about it for a minute, the problem is that this man couldn't. He couldn't stop sinning. He couldn't save himself from that coming condemnation because nobody can stop sinning, can they? I could ask for a show of hands for anybody who's stopped sinning. I hope nobody would put their hand up. Anybody who's married certainly wouldn't because their wife would be giving them a dig or their husband would give a dig. Romans chapter 3 verse 12 says there's no one who does good. Not even one. And even religion with all of its rules and all of its regulations, can't change this. Religion can't save us. Religion cannot deal with the problem of our sin. 
Just a little later on in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says this. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Even the law of God can't deal with our sin. All the law of God can do is point out the fact that we're guilty. And that we've broken God's commands. And we deserve hell. And so here, here what I think is going on here. Just as this man was completely powerless to heal his own body from his disability, either through his efforts or through his religion or through his superstition, so he was completely powerless to save his soul. But just as Jesus was the only one who could heal his body in an instant, so Jesus is the only one who can save his soul. Healing is only possible through the power of Jesus. Salvation is only possible through the one who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross. And that's what Jesus went on to say in this chapter, verse 24. We'll look at this again in a few weeks. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. And so when Jesus told this man to stop sinning, in case something worse may happen to you. I think the proper response would have, would have been for him to get on his knees and say, Jesus, I can't. Please forgive me. Please save me. But it seems that, unfortunately, this man wasn't willing to do that. Do you see how he responded? Verse 15. The man went away He went away from Jesus and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Instead of realising his desperate need and trusting in Jesus as his Saviour and Lord, this man was still stuck in his tradition. Instead of sticking with Jesus, he went back to his religion. So his body was healed. But his sin was not forgiven. So what about us today? Are we still stuck trying to save ourselves through our efforts or religious beliefs? Are we still stuck trying to clean up our lives, sort out our problems with our strength or our superstitions? Or have we realised That Jesus has the power to do what we could never do for ourselves. Are we willing to turn to him and trust in him to receive this eternal life? Knowing that one day we will experience the fullness of his healing power over sickness and sin and death. Today, do you want to get well? Do you want to let Jesus cleanse you, make you whole?
bring into that relationship with God and know that He is with us forevermore.